Chapter 3. The Best Years of My Life In those days, Ancoats was a rough area, so most of the time I stayed indoors. I didn't want to get in any trouble, especially because I lived alone. However, I soon found that the Weiss was not for me, and I no longer wanted to become a carpenter. So I quit and got a job in the warehouse of a clothing brand called Jekyll and Hyde. This was where my career really began. I loved clothes and fashion, having always been good at choosing outfits. It made perfect sense to go into the clothing retail business. Pretty soon after starting at the warehouse, I moved onto the shop floor in Manchester. When they saw that I was good at my job, they transferred me to a branch in London, somewhere around Oxford Street. Living in London was amazing, but Manchester called, and once again I found myself back up north. It was during this time that I finally found my biological mother. I had a mate named Paul Morgan who helped me track her down. We went clubbing together at the Hacienda, and I lived in his flat for several years. This was the first time I'd ever looked for Margaret, but now I made the effort because at 20 years old, I suddenly felt the instinctive impulse to find and get to know my parents. Searching for my dad proved a non-starter, so I couldn't believe that Paul had managed to track down my mother. All I knew was Margaret's name and nationality. Absolutely nothing else. Not the color of her hair or eyes or anything like that. Paul, however, was good with computers and in fact worked with them. I felt stunned when somehow he managed to find her phone number. She was living in Manchester with a husband and two children. I was excited and feeling very curious when Paul told me the news. Eventually, I decided to take a big chance and called her. The first time that I rang, Margaret hung up. This was disappointing, but I remained undeterred. When I tried her again, I tried to make sure that she didn't slam down the receiver again by quickly letting her know my reason for calling. Relieved that she was now listening to me, I told Margaret that I didn't want anything from her. I only wanted to meet her. She really wasn't sure about this suggestion, but gave no reason why. This made me wonder if her husband and other children had even the first idea that I existed. After all, I couldn't be sure. Finally, however, she agreed. I couldn't believe that after all this time, such a fateful meeting was about to take place. We met at a McDonald's in Manchester Town Center. I guess if anyone had questioned her, being seen in a McDonald's wouldn't have looked too odd, and she could have passed me off as someone sitting at her table. I didn't know what to expect when I saw her, but I was surprised by the image before me. My mum seemed frail. She couldn't have been more than 40, but looked like a little old lady. This shocked me, and it was clear that she'd had a very hard life. I wanted answers about my childhood. Who was I? Where did I come from? Who was my father? My mum was cagey kind of cold, and evidently she didn't want to discuss anything in detail. Still, I thought that our meeting might have been the beginning of a relationship, or at least I hoped. She mentioned that she'd kept a photo of me as a baby, so I guessed that she must have thought about me in some way over the years. When we said goodbye, Margaret said that she would call me, but she never did. Of course, this hurt me. Eventually, I gave up all hope of having a relationship with her, at least for a while. But this burning question would never leave me. Why did my mum not want, want to have anything to do with me? It would be several more years before I attempted to make contact with Margaret again. After a while, I left Jekyll and Hyde 
and got a new job at a really exciting store called Geese in the Royal Exchange. I couldn't believe my luck. This was a highly influential Manchester clothes shop run for more than two decades by a man named Steve Caton. It was through Geese that I met loads of my best friends and discovered the Hacienda. Securing this job marked a significant milestone in my life, made even more thrilling by Geese's relocation and relaunch. The store's entrance boasted distinctive automatic doors, circular and painted a vibrant pink. This bold color palette extended to the interior walls. Two large cylindrical changing rooms constructed of corrugated fiberglass evoked an industrial feel. This design was mirrored in the banisters and an innovative chute connected the upper floor to the tills below, allowing clothes to slide down for payment. A truly avant-garde touch. It was in this vibrant setting that Susie Warburton came into my life. Trusting my instincts, I chose a dress for her that I believed would be perfect. When I brought it to her in the changing room, she confidently revealed herself to me in her underwear. Struck by her audacity, I invited her to the hacienda. We became a couple and shared two wonderful years together. Despite her affluent roots in Chester, Susie remained refreshingly grounded. I shared a good rapport with her father, even with his playful habit of intimidating me with his shotgun. Fortunately, her mother was quite fond of me and was much warmer in her demeanor compared to her husband. Geese held the most extravagant fashion shows at Manchester's illustrious Hacienda, the club where anyone who was anyone could be found. The trendsetters, those with their finger on the pulse, would be adorned in Geese's hand-picked designer apparel staff and clubbers alike. Those were some of the best years of my life. During the 1980s, the Hacienda, also known as the Hots, was undoubtedly one of the best nightclubs and music venues in the world. And the years I spent partying here were among the best of my life. There will never be another club to rival it. The rise of ecstasy and house music became intoxicatingly mixed with the latest fashions and all the fit birds. I found myself feeling euphoria most nights and began living for the weekends. There were no rules and no holds barred at the Hotch. You could be who you wanted to be, do what you wanted to do, and create memories to last a lifetime. That is, if you could even remember them when you woke up the next day. After finishing work on a Friday, I'd go home, get changed, and ring the boys to arrange where to meet. Most of the time it was at Dry Bar, a spin-off venue of the Hacienda, for a brandy and coke or two before popping a pill. I never worried about taking pills or even stopped to consider the consequences. It was just what we all did and it made me feel great. Then we'd rush to the hatch, straight to the front of the queue. One of the perks of working for Geese was knowing the Hacienda bouncers and the manager. Our booth faced the dance floor and was closest to the bar, so it quickly filled with people. We, the popular people, the in-crowd, and we knew this and relished it. When the Hotch finally closed its doors in the early hours, all my friends then came back to my flat. People even began queuing outside. We could have done with a bouncer of our own. The partying continued until about 8 a.m., with DJ Kurt on the decks spinning the tunes. If I'd charged people for attending, I imagine I could have made a small fortune. I was quite meticulous about cleaning up my flat afterwards. During the party itself, though, Drink flowed, drugs were available, and loads of people had a great time dancing to very loud music. Happily, there were never any problems with the neighbors or the police. To this day, 
I have no idea how I got away with that. One of my friends was a guy named Boo Boo. One night at the Hotch, I ended up dancing with a fit girl known as Kitten that he'd once had a fling with. When he saw us getting on well, Boo Boo asked me for a quick word, so I followed him through the plastic and straight to the cafe. I sat down and he said, you're spending a lot of time down there with her. You know who I mean, Kitten? Yeah, I replied. Why? You haven't seen her for two years. No friend of mine would see my ex, Boo Boo exclaimed. Stupidly, my arrogant response was, you mustn't be my friend then, Boo Boo responded in kind by knocking my lights out. I woke up near the front of the club with all the bouncers nearby. As they knew me, some of them offered their services for some recompense. I wasn't that kind of guy, though, and realized that getting boo-boo bashed up wouldn't help anything or anyone. No, it's all right. I said he's a friend of mine and I'm not fighting over no girl. Dazed and confused, I walked into the road in front of the hotch and got hit again, this time by a taxi. Fortunately, I wasn't injured, but the driver felt obliged to take me to hospital. I'd ruined a perfectly good weekend. The next day, I spoke to Boo-Boo's ex and told her what had happened. We both decided that it wasn't worth the trouble and called it a day, which was a great shame. We remained friends, though, and years later, she emigrated to Australia. I still fondly remember those curves. I sometimes wonder what she's doing now. I hope she's happy. The week after this incident took place, Boo-Boo and I patched things up, settling our differences and continuing as good friends should. We had an absolutely amazing night at the Hotch, and then a group of us went back to a girl's house. We called her Green Eyes, and funnily enough, she was yet another ex of Boo-Boo's. Green Eyes' parents were away on holiday, so we had their massive countryside residence all to ourselves. After we'd taken some drugs, she revealed that her father owned a Ferrari and asked if we wanted to take a look. In the garage, we found not only the fancy Italian sports car, but also an expensive mountain bike and a trunk crammed with fancy dress clothes. Me being me, I got all dressed up in what can only be described as psychedelic clown trousers, a scarlet shirt and a humongous Afro wig. When I paraded into the living room to rapturous laughter, someone yelled out, I dare you to go outside looking like that. Always one to accept a challenge, I took the bike and cycled down the road to the lakeside. I stood there skimming stones for about an hour, or so I thought. The drugs had taken full effect. Next thing I knew, along came an elderly couple walking their dog. Morning, I chirped in my crazy circus outfit and asked them, which way is it to the mansion? It's down there, lad, they replied, so I cycled back down the lane and then came to a sty. Hold on a second, a sty? I didn't remember there being a sty. I could see a group of kids off in the distance playing Sunday morning football. It's too early for football, I thought. Just then, a police car rolled by and the copper wound down the window. Is your name Lucas? inquired the voice inside. They told me that my friends were looking for me. I'd been missing for six hours. My mates had phoned the police and been checking all the hospitals. I'd completely lost track of time and spent five hours stoned at the water's edge, chucking rocks into the lake. The police escorted me back to the mansion where all my friends were waiting, relieved I wasn't dead in a ditch. I revealed I'd just lost track of time and apologized to everyone. I dropped off the bike and got out of the daft clothes. We all said our goodbyes and arranged to meet the following weekend. All this was just a standard night out in the life of Chris Lucas, really.
I always had a girl on my arm. I suppose I was considered good-looking. I wasn't a player, though. I was always committed to who I was with. It's just they never worked out. I was a trendsetter. I would rather spend my money on clothes and style than food. Well, I could always get fed at mums anyway. One night, I slept in the dark as I couldn't pay the electricity bill as I had spent my wages on a new shirt. John Richmond, it cost a hundred pounds, and that was a lot of money in these days. I remember one Friday, it was especially hot. Mates of mine, Maka and Dominic, decided to bring water pistols in with them. Initially, it was to keep them cool, but as you can imagine, it turned into a water fight. With their water pistols in hand and tanks strapped to their backs, they started firing, soaking anyone and everyone in their path. The floodgates opened. It had started a war, as others had the same idea. He was slipping and sliding all over the place. It was hilarious to watch. The entire club was drenched, but as it was hot, the management just watched the ensuing chaos unfold and laughed. Even the bouncers didn't seem to be bothered. Another night, a TV crew was filming Hitman and Her at the club, and a mate of mine, Orville, got on the TV cheering behind Michaela Strachan. It was usually a show that focused on more mainstream, cheesy discotheques. It was a pleasant surprise to see them at the Hacienda. It was a good night. A rumor made its way around that Michaela Strachan was high on acid. I can't confirm that, but I do remember seeing her at end of the night dancing and sweating on stage long after the film crew had left. One time, nearing the end of the night, after taking a couple of pills with a young lady, we were getting quite close, I took her up the stairs to have a kiss, but before we reached the top, she started kissing me and proceeded to sit me down on the staircase, where she wanted to give me a nosh, but I said, no, not here. I was extremely happy. We took a taxi straight to our home. During the final days of the Hacienda, I met the founder and owner, Tony Wilson. He gave me a lift home one night and shared that the club wasn't making any money. I didn't fully grasp how serious he was until the club closed down. It was devastating for me and my friends. We practically lived there. One of those next weekends involved a Saturday night at the Hack, followed by a visit to Shelley's. This was an after-hours club, which opened at 3 a.m. As not all our group could fit into the car, I offered to sit on the roof. But as my friends said that idea was too dangerous, I offered to climb into the boot instead. Typical me. Apparently, that was not a good idea either, so I had to stay behind. I returned to my flat and put on some tunes on, all on my lonesome. I made a couple of drinks and started dancing, just as the whiz took hold of my nervous system. You might ask what the adverse consequences of these actions might have been. None. I cleaned the whole flat. I scrubbed the kitchen from top to bottom and hoovered the halls. As the flat was on the ground floor, I'm pretty certain that I even cleaned the windows on the outside. Like I said, I always looked after the place. After we parted ways with the Hacienda, Chuff Chuff emerged as our primary social highlight. Hosted quarterly at ever-changing venues, the location remained a closely guarded secret until just days before, a tactic to deter unwanted attendees and sidestep police intervention. Each Chuff Chuff event featured a unique theme. Attendees were urged to dress in line with that theme or simply don an extravagant outfit. The essence was to craft a memorable evening distinct from the conventional nightclub experience. I attended a vampish sexuality night and a Mad Hatter-themed evening, the latter with Susie. 
I recall taking a couple of pills the morning of a chuff-chuff event, which lasted from noon to midnight. The atmosphere was so immersive that discerning the actual time became a challenge. This period was also filled with great holidays. After loads of Euro breaks in Spain, in 1994, my mate Kenny and I decided we should try somewhere a bit more unusual, Cancun, Mexico. This was expensive, but thankfully I just won 2,000 pounds on the lottery by matching five numbers. Too bad that never happened again. We flew direct from Manchester in economy class, which made for a nightmarish 10-hour journey, something I swear that I'll never repeat as long as I live. Mexico, though, was really cool. As soon as we arrived at the hotel, there was a party in full swing on the beach. I met two girls that first night, Bolton girls with really broad accents. Cancun was a wonderful place, full of the loveliest ladies. Kenny's first ever time at sea was on our deep sea fishing trip. He managed to reel in a marlin, really impressing the locals, fighting for two hours to land it, and loving every moment. That's the way to start, but I don't think he ever reeled in anything as big as that again. Unfortunately, you can take the boys out of Manchester, but you can't take Manchester out of the boys. One night, we're dancing in a bar when I accidentally bumped into a geezer. He started getting loud and leery, so needless to say, I did too. We created such a commotion that the club management got involved, and I ended up on my arse in the dirt outside the club. Why can't I take you anywhere? growled Kenny, and he stayed inside. When the club closed at 2 a.m., Kenny came out steaming, yelling, You've ruined the night! He had his fists up and a crowd gathered round as he kept on yelling, I'll kill you! Then the police showed up. Kenny was handcuffed immediately, but I was shown a little more leniency. The officer asked for all the money I had on me to avoid spending the night in jail. Kenny wasn't so lucky and got carted off to a shit-stained Mexican jail cell. When he was finally released, Kenny refused to have anything to do with me for three whole days. Geese at Police Street closed, and again I was out of work, but it wasn't for very long as I knew the manager at Woodhouse really well. Tom frequented the hacienda, so after a few drinks and a chat, he offered me a job. Woodhouse was focused mainly on high-fashion menswear such as Hugo Boss and Armani. I met my friend Curtis at Woodhouse. He worked with Paul Morgan, so we, it was inevitable we would become mates. I worked here for about four years, but when it closed, I once again found myself in need of a job. I'd always liked the clothes which race produced. All well, very made with nice materials. Having bumped into their manager a few times, I decided to ask if they had any vacant positions. So, brimming with confidence, I walked straight into the race branch in the Trafford Center, and they offered me the job of assistant manager. I had the gift of the gab in those days, I can tell you. I quickly formed a great rapport with all the staff and right from day one, worked hard to keep my sales figures high. I even headed up meetings in London to discuss the latest trends and plan the upcoming seasons, which made me feel pretty important. This was a great boost to my confidence, and I really felt, at long last, that my life was going somewhere exciting. By this time, I was also in a happy relationship with a great girl. I met Mel when she came into the store every week to deliver flowers. She was a small brunette and a bonny-looking lady. We used to chat briefly every time she stopped by. For a while, there was nothing more than that, until one day when she decided to grab my arse. This was funny and cute, so I invited Mel to the hacienda. 
We had a great time and both felt a spark. Could this be the kind of relationship I always wanted? Eventually, I began going round to her place for dinner, always staying to chill or watch films. Mel was cool, and I liked that our social sets were completely different. She wasn't the going-out-clubbing type. She was just a really lovely girl. I began, of course, to develop feelings for her and hoped that she'd continue to feel the same. Next, I was promoted to manager and transferred to the race branch in King Street, Manchester. Afterwards, I was heavily involved in opening the new store in Dublin, and there were plans for race to open new stores worldwide, New York, Paris, and Dubai. I dreamed of opportunities in New York, living among skyscrapers, hearing that polished New York accent, and eating huge pulled beef and gherkin sandwiches. The possibilities for my life could be absolutely endless. But sadly, this was all to remain a dream. I was about to begin living a nightmare. 